kind of get out your message outline. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 10. We are at the eighth and ninth plague. I know you've been thinking all week. What a joy it will be to go to church and hear about the plagues. So, it should be interesting. Exodus 10 is, again, a long passage, and there's a lot there. So we're going to sort of read it as we go through it. So uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we do need it. We, uh, as always, need to be constantly reminded of what makes you great. We need your glory. We need to see your judgments in your word. We pray that we would not be uh, deaf with our ears or hard with our hearts. Cause our hearts to be soft to your words. Help us to praise you as we see your Providence, your action, your will, your sovereignty displayed in your word. Help us to see this as holy, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient word of God, our only rule of faith and practice. So as we bow before you, we cry out that you would take hold of us by your word, by your spirit, in order to set apart Christ alone as Lord of our lives. Due to our hard hearts, we need him. We need his salvation. We need a savior. Help us see Jesus this morning. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Have you ever found yourself asking the question, what is God trying to tell me? I don't know. If you've asked that question, typically we... uh, ask ourselves that question in the midst of difficult and hard circumstances. And we're trying to figure them out. We're trying to understand, why is this happening to me? We don't usually ask that question when it's happening to you, because you probably did something. But when it's happening to me, then we start questioning. Often this question of what is God trying to tell me is the cry of a person who just is feeling hard circumstances press in on them. And he or she is looking for meaning or purpose in the middle of what's happening. I'll admit I've asked that question more than once. And there are some times when I don't really know the answer. There's times when God's purpose and the circumstances of life aren't very clear. There's times what I've called the hidden side of God's will. When you know there's a lesson or a reason behind what's happening, but it's just not clear. You have no idea what it is. What is God trying to tell me? Now, there are other times and other moments when all the circumstances of divine providence line up so clearly that it's not hard at all to see the connection. You know, people have asked me, how do I know if I'm being disciplined by God? Oh, you'll know. God will not leave you guessing. In other words, there are moments when you're clearly headed down the wrong path and you know it. There's moments when you're not in a good place spiritually and you know it. And God allows things in your life to get more difficult. Or he takes away things that are becoming too important to you. The Apostle Peter describes this moment this way. He says, 1 Peter 5, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James talks about it in far more uh, direct and blunt terms. In James 4, he says, you adulterous people. I love you too. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, 
He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. When God allows things into your life to become more difficult, that should force us to start asking questions. This divinely designed difficulty targets a very important question that every human being has to answer. And sometimes God allows these things in your life to force you to ask the question and to answer the question and to deal with the question of who is your God? See, behind the difficulties, the challenges, the oppositions, the hardships that we face are a whole set of fundamental questions. Who's in control of life? Who's in control of your life? Who gets to set the rules? Who should be obeyed? Who is God? Who is your God? And I think these are, at a very fundamental level, the questions that Pharaoh is dealing with in the book of Exodus. He's confronted with circumstances that he can't control, and he's in control of everything. And these circumstances and this lack of control is challenging his confidence and his pride and his whole sort of reason for being. Pharaoh is more than a king. He is a deity himself. He is the be-all and end-all for Egypt. And he's hitting something that he can't control. And it's just hammering his pride. God and Pharaoh are in a contest of wills. And the plagues are the means by which God is judging this powerful ruler. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has told Pharaoh what he has to do. And Pharaoh's failure to submit to the one true God is creating more and more pressure, more and more hardship, more and more difficulties. But we're not left in the dark about what God's doing. God's purpose is clearly stated in Exodus chapter 9. There he says, But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. So far we've seen this conflict through the first seven plagues. We've seen God challenge the Egyptian worldview and their worship of the Nile by turning into blood. We saw God use an army of frogs to assault their belief in the goddess of fertility. We learned about the annoying presence of gnats and the invasion of the flies. And each plague has built on the other, and there's a clear message behind them that God is supreme over all rivals. And we've watched as the magicians of Egypt could replicate the first few plagues, but couldn't stop them. And then they become unable to replicate the rest of them, leading them to say in Exodus 8, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And God, through Moses, is attacking the gods of Egypt, their national pride, their national security, their understanding of the whole created order and Pharaoh's pride, and he's doing it all at once. God is bringing deliverance to his people through judgment. And this is the essence of the problem. Pharaoh and God are in a battle as to who is worthy of the Israelite service. And God is essentially telling Pharaoh, that the people don't belong to him. That they belong to God and that they should be serving God, not Pharaoh. And the plagues are built on one another and they're going to get worse and worse and worse. And the plagues are actually tearing Egypt apart and bringing Pharaoh to his knees. And God is delivering his people and humbling Pharaoh through the plagues. And so today we're turning our attention to the remaining plagues before we get to the tenth and final judgment, the death of the firstborn. But before we get there, there are a number of things to observe in this whole section on the plagues. First, God is actually 
highlighting his mercy to Pharaoh. He could have just destroyed them a long time ago. He could have just wiped them out, but he doesn't. And so we see even in judgment, there's mercy. And see, God, remember, he issued a warning to people uh, and the animals not to be outside when the plague of hail uh, comes. Uh, God clearly states his purpose uh, to display his power and proclaim his name. And finally, Pharaoh's central problem is his idolatry, which is compounded and made worse by his pride. All of which brings up the central question of the plague narratives, and that's the question of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And we're going to examine that, look at that from a bunch of different perspectives uh, today. And we're going to start by taking a step back and looking at the big picture, which brings us to the subject of hardening and God's judgment. Hardening and God's judgment. This whole passage is like Exodus 5 through 12. It covers a big chunk of Scripture of the book of Exodus. And we know from last week that God sent Moses to Pharaoh with a message. It said, let my people go. You know, they're in slavery. You're the king of the country where they're enslaved. Let them go that they might worship me. And the first time Pharaoh hears this message from Moses is all the way back in chapter 5. That's the beginning of this part of the book of Exodus that deals with the events leading up to the Passover and the Exodus itself. And in chapter 5, Pharaoh responds to Moses uh, by saying, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. That's what Pharaoh says. And that's what triggers the plagues coming down and striking Egypt. So what do the plagues mean? Unfortunately, the plague narrative, as I said, stretches all the way from chapter 5 through chapter 12, even into chapter 13. And we've seen the first of the plagues, the turning of the Nile River into the blood, and today we'll go all the way to the darkening of the sun and the moon, which is the second to last plague before the climax comes uh, at Passover with the final plague. So what are the plagues about? What does all this mean? Well, I think it's real easy to come up with a superficial response. And one superficial response is to say, great, I love this, God smites the bad people. You know, there's a time in my life that I probably would have said that. You know, this is the good stuff. It's kind of like, you know, all those battle scenes and judges and Samuel. Kind of like, finally, we get to the good stuff. And I think a lot of people look at that and say, they're bad, they deserve it, God smacks them. Good. That's pretty superficial. The other superficial response is on the opposite side. Oh, I hate this. This is why I got out of institutional religion. This is why I left the church. I hate this. It's dangerous to believe in a God who is a God of judgment, who strikes down unbelievers. And I think both responses are shallow and superficial. See, the plagues come to answer Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? It forces us to ask the same question. Why should we obey God? Why should we obey this God? And what could happen to us when we don't? When Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? He's not speaking as a religious atheist. But he's speaking as a religious pluralist. Hardly any religious atheists in those days. Everybody was a religious pluralist. So when he says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? He's not saying as an atheist would, I don't believe your God exists. He's saying what the pluralists would say, which is, you have your God, I have my God. Why in the world would you insist that I obey or listen to your God? This is Egypt. We have our gods. You have your God. Fine. Why should I ever obey your God? That's the view of Pharaoh. The religious pluralist believes in a whole bunch of gods. They're all great. It's like that coexist bumper sticker. That's a religious pluralist. They're all there. They're all good. Awesome. Glad it works for you. You know, I think there's a lot of things about America that Pharaoh probably wouldn't like. But when it comes to religion, 
think he'd feel very much at home. Because that's pretty much what most people in America believe. Most people, most Americans today, are actually religious pluralists. They may claim this different religion here or there, but when you get talking to them, you find out they're religious pluralists. I'm a Christian, but you know, I think the Muslims are awesome, and the Jews are awesome, and the Buddhists are awesome, and the Hindus are awesome, and really glad it all works for them, and we'll just see everybody in the end. And there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people in the church who basically have that opinion. Religious pluralists. Many views of God, many perspectives about spiritual reality. And part of that view says that no one gets to say that my view is better than your view. My view is superior to anybody else's view. No one's ever allowed to say, you should actually abandon your view, abandon your view of God and take on my view. Religious pluralists would say, that's not good, that's wrong, that's intolerant. In other words, what the average American thinks is exactly what Pharaoh thought. And God's message is that Pharaoh is gravely mistaken. In fact, if you notice, the plagues are very carefully chosen. The Nile River was a god. It's worshipped by the Egyptians. God smites it. That's a King James word. That's an awesome word. Nobody has a doubt what that means. God smites it. Just You know that's bad. You know, the, the locusts and the animals all have Egyptian gods. God smites them. The hail was under the weather god. God smites it. The sun and the moon are also gods. Very important gods worshipped in this whole Egyptian pantheon. God smites them. In Exodus 7, thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. First plague. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. And then chapter 9, right before the great hailstorm, God says, the Lord says to Moses, Rise up early in the morning, Present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me, for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. There it is. First message of the plagues. The religious pluralist view that everybody has their own God and their own religion and it's all equally valid and every God is equally good for the people who worship them. First message of the plagues is that God responds to all of that by saying, no, I'm the unique God, I'm the one true God, there is none like me in all the earth. Now, I understand why a lot of people respond to that by saying, I don't like that at all. I don't know if I can accept that. But in the context of the whole Bible, there's a very good answer to this question of why God would claim there is none like me in all the earth. I mean, to some degree, it's God's way of saying, I'm bigger than all the other gods. I'm badder than all the other gods. I don't think God would actually say it that way. But... I'm more real than all the other gods. In fact, all the other gods aren't real at all, but I am. And I'm not only real, but I define all reality. The first thing the plagues of Egypt show us is he's the unique God, the unique judge. There is none like me in all the earth. So now that we're like halfway through, let's dive into our text for today. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the first two points because I want to spend most of my time on the third point. So very quickly, look at verses 1 and 2. Hardening and God's purpose. So we had hardening God's judgment, now hardening and God's purpose for those of you who are filling in the blanks. See, so in verses 1 and 2, we have this theological introduction explaining everything going on with the plagues. We're given this general framework of how to interpret what God's doing. And the purpose of the plagues... And the purpose of God's sovereign providence is explained here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10. So let's hear it. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, 
that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. The plague account begins with a somewhat astonishing directive. Look again at verse 1. Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. This is the worst news that any preacher can ever hear. Go to that congregation. They're not going to listen to anything you say. And there are days I think that's exactly right. But that's how this passage begins. And notice the connection. Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. It's precisely because I, the one true God, am sovereign, because I'm in control, that I'm sending you to Pharaoh. By the way, this is exactly what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. Chapter 3, paragraph 1. It says the same way the scriptures uh, say it right here in Exodus 10. The opening section of this chapter, it's on God's eternal decree. And it's written in kind of King James language, so you'll have to listen carefully. But we read this. God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So God is in control over everything. He is absolutely sovereign. But the fact that he's in control over everything doesn't take away your responsibility to obey and not sin. It doesn't take away your liberty, the freedom of the will, and it doesn't take away what it's called here second causes, that things happen in your life that God allows, that you respond to either faithfully or unfaithfully. And that's what we see here. God is sovereign. God has an eternal decree. That decree impacts Pharaoh. God's not responsible for Pharaoh's sin. Uh, Pharaoh is. And Moses is to go to Pharaoh. Moses is the second cause here even though Pharaoh's heart is hard, and the liberty and contingency of Pharaoh and Moses' actions are not undercut by God's sovereignty. It's a great example of the, how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility works together. So you got all that, right? Good, because it gets worse. Back to the Confession of Faith, this time chapter 5, paragraph 6. And now we're thinking specifically of Pharaoh. What do you do with a really bad guy? And you can, you know, say it's Pharaoh, or you can either, you know, go back or forward in time, pick out your favorite bad guy from history. Chapter 5, paragraph 6, addresses this. Here we're thinking specifically of Pharaoh. It says, as for those wicked and ungodly men whom God, as a righteous judge, for former sins does blind and harden. From them he not only withholds his grace, whereby they might have, been, might have been enlightened in their understandings and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraws the gifts which they had and exposes them to such objects as their corruption makes occasions of sin and gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves even under those means which God uses for the softening of others. What's God's purpose in hardening some and softening others? And notice he uses the same means. That's why when you experience a great loss in your life, for some people it drives them to God. I've experienced a great loss. The only thing I can do is turn to God. And other people, it drives them away from I've experienced I, you know, a great loss. How could God let that happen? And they blame God. It could be the exact same loss to the exact same family. We could be talking about twins. Sometimes the same action softens the hearts of some and hardens the hearts of others. 
And you're probably not going to be able to definitively answer why this side of heaven. And that's something of what we're reading here. Go back to verse 2 in Exodus 10. That you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. It was the main point of last week's sermon. I encourage you to go back and, and read that or hear that again. But note that God's purpose hasn't changed. As we go through all of these plagues, all the events, over and over again, the purpose of God's salvation, delivered through God's judgment, is that you may know that I am the Lord. And yet, people remain in their sin. I asked the high school class today, I said, what do you think about Pharaoh? We've gotten to the eighth plague. Pretty universally, all said, he's a moron. He's dumb. Why does it take eight plagues? Well, eight doesn't take eight. It takes ten. We've only gotten eight. And so we see there's this relationship between hardening and our sin. Hardening and our sin, starting at verse 3. This is the longest passage here, dealing with the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. Please listen carefully. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, this is a great verse here. Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? The water turned to blood. All the frogs left the water and came out and died, which created this uh, massive invasion of gnats and flies, which brought disease, affected the livestock. They started dying. Affected the people, they got a skin disease, boils broke out everywhere. And then to top it off, we had a massive hailstorm, very heavy hail. Think like golf balls and baseballs raining out of the sky. And now we're going to get locusts, just sort of to clean up what's left behind. And now it's the servants. You know, you don't go in and talk to the king, say, hey, I have some advice for you. You have to be called in. The king has to ask for your advice. And yet the servants say, do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? Look outside. There's nothing left. It's all wrecked. It's all destroyed. Starting at verse 8. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, go serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and our flocks and herds, for we must hold the feast to the Lord. But he, Pharaoh, said, The Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go just the men among you and serve the Lord, for that's what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail is left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts had never been before nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. 
Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once. Because obviously he only has one sin. He only needs to be forgiven one time, and then we're good. So if you weren't convinced he was a moron before, you ought to be convinced he's a moron now. It's kind of like, just forgive me this one time. You can condemn me all the rest of the time. I don't know about you, but like one sin happened like before I got out of bed this morning. You know, you may have made it to the bathroom, probably not. Um, you know, this is a lifetime of sins. What we see here is a, a completely false repentance. Only this once. And plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go. So the plague of locusts is devastating the land. There's a sense that creation is coming apart at the seams and the powers of the created order are dead set against Egypt. And Moses goes to present another warning to Pharaoh. In verse 3, thus says the Lord. The great line from the Old Testament over and over again. When the prophet comes and says, thus says the Lord, you should listen. The locusts are going to destroy everything that's left. And the pressure is mounting on Pharaoh. Even his servants plead with him to just end it. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? However, when Moses and Aaron are summoned back, the ruler of Egypt still refuses to submit. He attempts to convince Moses to only take the men with him. And Moses refused. He basically says, all or nothing. And Pharaoh gets mad, and the locusts come. An east wind something that will reappear in the Red Sea deliverance in Exodus 14. It brings this flood of plant-eating locusts, which according to verse 15, destroy everything that was left after the plague of hail. And then Pharaoh issues this statement of false repentance. Only this once. And yet Moses prays and withdraws the locusts, God now sends a west wind, drives them into the Red Sea. Note that it also comes back again. But as soon as the pressure is off, Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. He seems to be on a path of sort of personal and national destruction. Despite the obvious connection between painful consequences and his hard heart, he still refuses to humble himself before the God of the Hebrews. And this hardness of heart seems unstoppable. God is clearly sending Pharaoh a message, but he simply refuses to listen. And so God hits him again. And this time we get a real taste of hardening and God's power. Hardening and God's power, starting at verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Notice the third Sixth, ninth plagues, no warning. Moses doesn't go to Pharaoh. This basically comes back and it's like hammer him again. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. And they did not see one another nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burn offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He would not let them go. 
Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. So the ninth plague, the final warning before the last and ultimate plague, came without warning. It's a clear statement about a super important Egyptian god. Like most cultures of that time, the Egyptians worshipped the sun. Historically, his name was Ra, and he became to be viewed as the creator of all forms of life. And since the sun provides light and warmth and growth, it's hard to overestimate his importance in the Egyptian worldview. And therefore, the plague of darkness not only makes life difficult, but it would cause the people to feel as though life has spun completely out of control. Verse 21, God describes this plague as a darkness to be felt. It's a huge effect on Egyptian life. Verse 22, there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. For three days, everything in Egyptian life stops. People are isolated and cut off. The plagues have now personally impacted everyone and everything. Egypt is being judged. Pharaoh is being judged. The people felt the power of this plague. They are all alone in the dark. And with the second to last plague, Pharaoh starts to realize these aren't merely natural disasters. Yes, of course they happened when Moses said, yes, of course they didn't happen down in Goshen where the Hebrews lived, but the fact is up until this absolute thick darkness for three days, everything that had happened had happened before. And it had happened naturally. I mean, one thing led to another. There are all sorts of natural disasters. They're terrible and they're devastating, but they were natural. Surely if God wanted to make sure that Pharaoh and Egyptians knew that there was this supernatural, omnipotent God behind everything, he could have done a better job than this. Why does he do it this way? Would have saved everybody a whole lot of trouble if Moses just walked in and said, okay, Pharaoh, I'm going to show you an all-powerful supreme God has sent me, and he could have pointed to somebody in Pharaoh's court, like Frank, and puff, Frank bursts into flames. And then he could have pointed at Mark. Puff, Mark is gone, bursts into flames. And then he points to Pharaoh and says, you're next. What are you going to do? I mean, I think that would have gotten his attention. That would have been easy. But if God had done that, it actually would have undercut the message of the plagues. And yes, the plagues have a message to them. What's the message? I'm glad you asked. For years, scholars have noted that the plagues are an undoing of creation. Exodus 5 through 12 is an undoing of Genesis 1 and 2. What's happening in Exodus? The plagues aren't simply supernatural. Of course they are, and of course there's God at work. But what they are is nature out of control, nature breaking down, nature going crazy and devouring itself, nature reverting back to pre-creation chaos. So what you have in Genesis 1 and 2 is we see God takes all these elements, man, woman, animals, plant, land, water, weather, and turns them into this beautiful, perfect, interdependent, harmonious, coherent whole. They're absolutely at one with each other. They absolutely fit together. Everyone works with every other one in such perfection that everything is characterized by beauty and growth and wholeness and light and order. And now we see exactly the opposite. Every day of creation is being undone. What's going on through the plagues is now you have weather destroying the animals and insects destroying the plants and so on and so on until we get back to the very beginning in Genesis 1 where it says the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. And there was light and God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. Darkness is over the face of the deep. 
Before the Spirit of God, darkness, chaos. The Spirit of God comes, light, order. And what God is saying in the plagues is very important. God is saying, my power, my law, my authority is not arbitrary. It's not just an exercise in raw power. Everything I tell you to do is natural. And every time you disobey me, the consequences are utterly natural. To disobey me is to unleash forces of chaos and disorder in your life and in the life of everything around you. Because when you disobey me, you're violating the fabric of creation, the fabric of your own being. The consequences of disobedience to God are utterly natural because the law and the directives and the will of God are utterly natural. And when you disobey, the consequences are natural. And you unleash all sorts of forces of disorder and disintegration in your life and in the life around you. Why did God say to Adam in the garden at the fall as part of the curse, Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What he's saying is, I put you into the world. The world was perfectly put together. And I put you in the world to love me with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you don't live the way I tell you to live, all the coherence will turn to incoherence. All the integration will turn to disintegration. Everything will start to fall apart. And in Egypt, it does. The ninth plague ends with this emotionally charged statement from Pharaoh. Nine times he's been told to obey God, and nine times he's refused. The Nile, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locusts, and darkness have all been sent to break him of his pride, and yet he refuses, after all that, to humble himself. And in anger and arrogance, he tells Moses in verse 28, Get away from me. Take care to never see my face again. From the day you see my face, you shall die. Pharaoh's world is falling apart around him, and he refuses to listen to God. He doesn't even listen to his servants. He doesn't listen to Moses. He doesn't listen to anybody. And his hardened heart has become self-destructive. And yet God's power is not revealed just to punish Pharaoh and the Egyptians. God's power is revealed to prepare us for the ultimate exodus. For the ultimate exodus. As we look at these plagues, one of the things that people have noticed, it seems that God's not judgmental enough. God seems to be pulling his punches. I mean, isn't the purpose of the plagues to judge? Isn't the purpose of judgment to make people suffer, to make people squirm, to make people crawl, to make people submit? And yet... Before the hail plague, why does God send a warning? In effect, he, he, God says, I'm sending a plague of hail. Get your cattle out of the field. Get your farmhands out of the field. Get them out, or they're going to get hurt. What kind of judge is that? I mean, isn't the whole purpose of judgment to have lots of death and destruction? I mean, if I was planning this, thank God I'm not, but if I was planning this, you know, I have God saying, ha, huh, I'll make sure the hailstorm happens in the daytime instead of at night because there'll be a lot more running and screaming. And that's what I'm after. What's the matter with God? Why is he pulling his punches? The answer is once again, as often with many of these stories, we're missing the point. And the whole point of the plagues is the plagues have been sent to save. They've been sent to save. Do you realize that? Every one of the plagues has been sent to save. Let me show you how that's true. And yes, while the plagues are a judgment, that judgment is being sent to save the Hebrews. The Hebrews are going to be saved from slavery through judgment, right? That's obvious. Second reason, the plagues are going to go into the story that millions of people are going to look at for thousands of years. And through the story of this salvation, through the revelation of who God is, through his redemption in the book of uh, Exodus, he says that all the world will know. I mean, he's saying, I'm not just sending these plagues to save the Hebrews. I'm not just saving one ethnic group. I'm doing it in such a way that the whole world 
will understand what sin is, what salvation is, and who I am. And God's approach to judgment is not salvation or judgment. It's salvation through judgment. Through judgment. He judges in order to save. That's why he's so unique. When God says, I'm unique, I'm not like the other gods. I'm the one true God. Therefore, my religion is different from all the other religions. And you say, well, why? Here's the answer. It has to do with judgment. In Genesis 1, we read, darkness was over the face of the deep. And here in the ninth plague in Exodus 10, we read, darkness is over the face of the land. It's the ultimate sign that the sin of human beings deconstructs nature, deconstructs the fabric of our own being, deconstructs everything that God has made. It's unleashed the forces of disintegration to a place where we go heading back to the pre-creation chaos of Genesis 1. Darkness is over the face of the land of Egypt. We have darkness in Genesis 1. We have darkness in Exodus 10. And many years later, darkness comes again. We read about it in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 27. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sakbaksani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. You see what's going on? On the cross, Jesus Christ became the enemy of God. On the cross, all the plagues of God's justice fell into him. On the cross, darkness, pre-creation chaos came down on him. And he began to disintegrate because he's cut off from God. Everything about him disintegrated. He experiences absolute agony. Why? Because this is the ultimate exodus. This is the ultimate exodus. The judgment of God came down on Jesus. The plagues of God came down on Jesus. The darkness of God came down on Jesus. And as a result, we do not receive those plagues. We do not receive that darkness. We do not receive this judgment. He did it in our place. In other words, all the plagues that you deserve have fallen onto the heart of your Savior. And as we see this, so we can begin to sing with understanding. We see the word, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow, and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Those words start to have greater meaning. This means, yes, Jesus is the judge of all the earth. That's what he claimed, but he's the judge who came to bear judgment, not to bring judgment. Jesus Christ is the maker of the world. Gospel of John, Apostle John says, John 1, 3, all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. But Jesus Christ, the maker of all things, went to the cross. That's amazing. Our maker was unmade on the cross so that he could remake you and me, so that he could forgive us, so that he could rescue us, so he could deliver us, he could save us, he could lead us out of Egypt into the promised land. You know one of the things that's so wonderful about Jesus' life that I just love, about his ministry. And that's the miracles. Think about the miracles are the unplagues. They're the unplagues. I mean, the miracles aren't just naked displays of power. Jesus could have easily said, you want me to prove I'm the Son of God? Watch me turn that mountain upside down. Look at that. Can you do that? No, he doesn't do that. What's he do? He heals the sick. He fed the hungry. He raised the dead. The miracles of Jesus are not so much a suspension of the natural order as they are a restoration of the natural order. The miracles of Jesus show that he didn't just come to save your soul in heaven forever, but to restore the natural order, to give us a taste of what the new heavens and new earth are actually going to be like. Why? Because blind people aren't supposed to be blind. 
deaf people aren't supposed to be deaf and dying people aren't supposed to be dying. It's not the way God invented the world. The world has taken a great fall and yet through the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior is going to put it all back together again. He's the designer of your heart. He's the healer of your soul. He's the judge who was judged. He's the maker who was unmade so that he could remake you and the whole world. And that's why as we see this, as we realize this, once again, we can sing with real understanding. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Pharaoh wouldn't do that. You and I have to. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes, soften our hearts, that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord, and lead us to greater worship as you reveal yourself as rescuer, deliverer, redeemer, and Savior. Thank you, Father, for showing us this terrible part of the Bible, for showing us in the plagues a heart that loves us, a heart that wants to save us. You're the maker, remake us. You're the great physician, heal us. You're the savior, save us. We pray you would show us how we can follow in your footsteps because we've been saved through judgment, the judgment of your son, our savior, on the cross. We pray you would transform our lives into lives of obedience and service and patience and forgiveness because of these truths. And for this we give you thanks. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. God bless you. We'll see you next week.